book of Nehemiah. Let's return now and consider this um, 13 chapter chronicle that uh, details for us the amazing feat of the Israelites, how they returned to Jerusalem uh, in various segments, and under Nehemiah's leadership, were able to rebuild the city's walls in uh, just a little under two months, 52 days. Nehemiah stands out as one of my favorite books. Um, I think I... I changed my favorite book, whatever book I'm studying. I, I think that's my favorite book, though, you know, at the time I'm studying it. But uh, for one reason, it, it really chronicles and shows for us what God can do with committed leaders and committed people. And I don't know that we're in any, I don't know that any book actually fits where we are than this book right here. We're looking at a, at a, at a brand new year. We are officially autonomous. We've got committed leaders. Uh, we've got wonderful people committed uh, to the task. And I'm ready now to build the wall, so to speak. Aren't you? And I'm not saying we haven't built the wall in the past. But we have been in some, sort of a, some sense of a transition. Uh, many things have happened and changed. But you know what? I, I really sense in my heart that the last three to four months we've promised you and we've made a strong commitment. This is the stability is our goal. And we've given that. And I think that with January here now, we're going to see more of that. And we are going to build a wall for God in West Des Moines, so to speak. And I'm excited about that. And Nehemiah will walk us through how to do that. Two things occurred in Nehemiah that are very significant. Let me just give you a couple of uh, overview statements. First of all, they did rebuild the wall. We know that to be true. I like to say when they did this, they were getting things done. The wall was their task, right? They had a project to do. But more than that, they reformed the people, which means they actually got along. And I've titled this series, How to Get Things Done, and then in parentheses, and get along too. Because you've probably been a part of things where they got things done, and then when it was over, we all split up. Because in the process, we, we became enemies almost. Now, in humor, let me just share with you my experience with this. And I tread here lightly. I remember watching my, uh, our family undertake family projects as a kid. You know, things as simple as putting up a, a mini blind, you know, <laughs> hanging wallpaper. And it seemed like, I remember sometimes I sit back and say, you know, what is it that's so demonic about this event that causes these family, you know, riots? <laughs> and we would laugh, and after it's all over, you know, and uh, we'd laugh. But there were sometimes in the middle of getting something done, we found ourselves at each other's throats. Well, if you want to do it that way, you do it yourself. And we'd slam down the tools, and then, well, all I wanted was just, and, and I thought, man, what's so hard about this simple project? Perhaps you've had experiences like that. Where you got something done, but it was not exactly enjoyable. I want to say that one of the neat things about Nehemiah is that it shows how they got something done while they got along. I mean, there wasn't a split in this church plant, right? Isn't that great to know? We're going to look at that over the next several months. How to get something done and increase the love at the same time. Nehemiah... I uh, hope you've got fast fingers today because we're going to do the, let them do the walking through the book. So turn to Nehemiah 1. I want to show you that in an overview this morning the three things 
that enabled the Israelites to accomplish these two things, to, to rebuild the wall and reform the people. How do they get the job done and get along too? There were three major components. I'm going to walk you through them. We'll take one at a time. First of all, uh, the book divides itself in, in three sections. Chapters 1 through 3 talk about Nehemiah's strong and sensitive leadership. Look with me at chapter 1. Nehemiah is uh, in captivity in a foreign land. He's serving as the king's cupbearer. He's got a job. He probably wonders about home a lot, being uh, back in Jerusalem. And in verse 2, I'm going to really go faster. So you've got to follow me. In Nehemiah 1-2, it says he asked some fellow Jews, some fellow people about his homeland. And they told him about the distress there. So he begins to cry. Look at verse 4. He said, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days. I began to fast and to pray before God. And in verses 5 through 7, 8, 9, 10 are one of Nehemiah's great prayers. You know, in chapter 1, we see the beginning of Nehemiah's passion for what he really wants to do with his life. We see God raising up a leader to make a difference. I believe in my heart the walls would not have been built if Nehemiah would have said, You know what, God? Yeah, I ought to go back to Jerusalem. And they need me there, but you know what? I've got a good job. I've kind of got used to the, this land. It's not as bad as we thought. I think I'll stay right here. Now, I can't prove that biblically. There's no verse that says that. But in my heart, I wonder what would have happened if God's point person, if the leader would have said, I'm not going to take that risk. But let me just share with you one of the ways God works. And this is important because as you look into... Understanding God, and as you're growing as a Christian, the best way to do that is to know how does God work? Understand how God works then enables you to know how to, to act and to behave. God works through people first. Never get it backwards. Don't ever turn it around. God doesn't really get behind ideas. God gets inside of people. That when God wants to make an impact, he begins to look for people who will take a risk and do something in his name. God looks for leaders. As we enter this year, as we have entered this year, and we have the core group of folks here. We have some guests here, no doubt. We have some who have just joined recently. But for the most part, this is the core of our church. I want to ask you a question. Where will God have you lead this year? So, oh, I, I, didn't, I didn't ask for that. I come, I sit, and I even give. Can't you leave me alone? No. I won't leave you alone. Because God has greater plans for your life than to sit and to watch. God wants you to get involved and say, where can I lead and make an impact? You know, I, I'll be honest with you. One of the things I really want to see our church do, I don't know if this will happen. I'm praying for every day, God, help us be the first, is to be able to keep that member-worker ratio 
very close. I've told you this before. You know, typically it's the 80-20 rule. 80% of the work is done by 20% of the people. Right now, we've broken that rule. I bet most of you here are involved in some capacity. I want to keep that going. When new folks join, I don't want to say, great, find a seat and let us, we'll just take care of you. I want to do that in one sense, but then I want to say, hey, uh, here's a shovel, help me dig. Here's a brick, help us build the wall. Because God has gifted us to do just that, right? Serve. It all comes back to a simple principle, that when God wants to get something done, He works in the lives of people. How's God wanting you, and what is He wanting you to do to get something done? Is God putting you in a place where you can have greater impact as a leader? Let me show you some things about his leadership that I like. Look at chapter 2. He asks the king in verse 5, he says, hey, can I go back home and, and build my city's walls? He said, that's where my heart is. That's what I want to do. And by the way, if you ever want to know what it is that God wants you to do, just look inside your heart and ask yourself, what is it that makes me cry? You know, Nehemiah was involved in lots of things. When he heard about his hometown, it brought tears to his eyes. He fasted and mourned. If you want to know what really moves you, what should I be doing with my life? Ask yourself, what makes me cry? What moves me to take a risk? And you'll have your finger right on the heartbeat, what God wants you to do. The king, unbelievably so, gives him permission. Now, this was not a small task, by the way. In this culture, if he would have approached the king without an invitation, the king would have said, Chop! His head could have been cut off. They had this weird rule that you have to be invited to the royal palace, I guess. You couldn't just come in and say, hey, I need to talk to you about something. There was no open-door policy in this arrangement. And Nehemiah took that risk, and God honored it. The king, in fact, gave him permission to leave, gave him wood. He gave him letters of passage through different countries. And Nehemiah is on his way. He arrives in Jerusalem in chapter 3. Look at verse 11. Excuse me, chapter 2, verse 11. I came to Jerusalem, and I was there three days, and I arose, and I... It talks about how he began to look around the city's walls. He gave a, an honest evaluation, a close inspection. Look at verse 16, chapter 2. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done. I like this about Nehemiah's leadership. You know, he didn't show up on the scene, and we're going to talk more about this later. He didn't show up and say, hey, everybody sit down, I've got the answers, Okay. I've only been here five minutes, but I can tell you what's going on around this place. I mean, there's none of that going on. You know what he did? He showed up and he spent days looking, viewing, listening. And then a great phrase in Nehemiah. Look at verse 17. I said to them, you see the bad situation we are in. Isn't that neat leadership? I mean, it's, it's good to be a strong leader and have a strong vision, but you don't point fingers and say, you ought to do this, and you're the reason this didn't happen, and you, at times, and, and eventually folks will say, you know, hey, we think you're right, but it's just kind of a bear being around you. You're a burden. Nehemiah was so God-led here. He viewed the situation, he got honest input, and then he said, hey, um, we're in a tough spot here. And immediately, they knew it's us, not just him or me. That's why I'm, I say this first element of strong but sensitive leadership. And Nehemiah rallied the troops. And he says, uh, verse 18, 
excuse me, verse 17, he says, here he states the vision very clearly. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. And you know what they did. In chapter 3, Chronicles, how they divided up the work, gate by gate, and started building. It wouldn't have happened if it hadn't been for a strong and sensitive leader. Second element that enabled these things to happen in 52 days. And that was, you're going to be surprised at this, and that was opposition. He said, whoa, whoa, wait, that wasn't an element that didn't have to happen. Yes, it did, because it unified the people. It took minds off the petty things. Got them for four with me. Verse 1, now it came about that when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became furious and began to mock the Jews. Look at verse 7. When Sanballat, Tobiah, and the Arabs, and Ammonites, and the Ashadites heard that the repair of the walls of Jerusalem went on, they became angry and they conspired together to come and fight against us. So they started to make fun of them. That didn't work. So they said, hey, we'll just flat out start a war against them. Well, that didn't work. You can read how they conquered that. I'm not going into the detail right now. Verse 21, though, of chapter 4 says this. We carried on the work with half of them holding spears. They said, well, we're not going to stop the fight. We're going to keep building while we're fighting. When that didn't work, they said, hey, Nehemiah, look in chapter 6. They said, Nehemiah, why don't we get together in the temple and have a time of prayer? It was a conspiracy, a plot. They were going to assassinate him. You know what Nehemiah said to him? Look down in verse uh, um, 8, 9, 10. He says, listen, you're just trying to uh, frighten me. Uh, you're inventing these things in your own mind. They said, let us meet together in the house of God. Um, he said, I don't have time for that. I'm not going to come down from this great work. So you had outside opposition and it forced the Israelites to focus on the job and not be sidetracked. In between these two outside oppositions, you find interesting thing happened in chapter 5. They, were, they had inner opposition. Look at chapter 5 now. I want to come back to this for a second. Look at verse 1. There was a great outcry of the people and of their wives. In other words, in the middle of the task, they just got tired. And here's what was happening. They were working long hours trying to get the wall built. And apparently, some men and people in the city were charging extraordinary interest on land and different things. And they were involved in some slavery issues. And, and it was wrong. Nehemiah says in verse 6, he said, Then I was very angry. Chapter 5, verse 6. I was angry when I heard their outcry. The people stood up and said, Nehemiah, we can't live like this forever. He took action there and solved that problem. Much of chapter 4, 5, and 6 is about the opposition that Nehemiah faced and how through prayer and action he conquered it. I want to say that's not an accident. I don't think we should be afraid of opposition here. In fact, I've said to you this before, and perhaps you won't like this. I think a little persecution might be the very thing we need. What happened in Acts? Peter and John and James were persecuted, thrown in prison, and the church got together and prayed. People split up and started sharing the gospel. You see, the truth is, most of you are probably just a little too comfortable. And you probably need somebody to, to persecute you. To make your faith a little difficult. And you'd suddenly, you'd suddenly forget, oh, that's right. Those little things really aren't that important. What matters are these major issues. That's why mission trips are so great. You take kids to Mexico. I mean, it's the common 
mission destination for youth groups. But I have not been on one yet when a young person didn't come back and say, Man, I'll never complain again. Because they realize just how fortunate they are. They realize that they've got it very good. See, a little opposition, a little tough times. Some things that weren't so great came their way and it improved their attitude. Am I praying for difficult times here this year? I wouldn't say I'm praying for them. But I will tell you this. At the first sign of persecution, opposition does not mean we're doing something wrong. I don't want you and I don't want ourselves to lose heart and think, well, we better change something. Sometimes the worst thing churches do is the first time something has opposition, they change everything. Maybe we just need to stay the course, preach the word, and be faithful and endure the opposition. A strong leader and then some real opposition. Third element, a return to scriptural authority. Look at chapter 8. Chapter 7 is kind of a transition chapter, by the way. Uh, It shows all the folks. It actually lists all the folks that came back. But look at chapter 6.15 first. I've got to read this verse to you. Look at chapter 6, verse 15. So the wall was completed. Isn't that interesting? That verse comes after the three chapters on opposition. You would think you'd find a verse that says, well, we had some tough times, so we had to postpone this. We're now a month later. But no. After three chapters of opposition, he says, hey, the wall was completed on the 25th of the month, Elul, in 52 days. Isn't that great? Look what it says about the enemies. They lost their confidence in verse 16. For they recognized this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Once you want to do something for God, when folks look up, they say, man, that had to be something from God because he or she could never have done that. So they're in the city, the walls are built, and they now return to the, to the law of their God. Look at chapter 8. Let me quickly run you through some things here. They begin to read the law of God aloud in public places. Now, you're going to be uncomfortable with this. this is not, you're not going to like this. And I'm glad because you need to realize how good we have it, how easy our church life is. And don't ask to go back to the Old Testament times, I promise you. Look at chapter 8. They asked Ezra in verse 1 to bring the, scroll, the book of the law of Moses. Verse 3, and he read it from before the square, which is in front of the water gate, from early morning until midday. We're only at 10 o'clock, people. I've been talking about 25 minutes. They started early morning until noon, just reading the first five books of the Old Testament. And probably just either Leviticus and Deuteronomy, the law. Count your blessings. Look what it says here. He read it in the presence, verse 3, of men and of women and of those who could understand. And all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Let me tell you why that's true. Because they had lost the law for so many years. They had been away from the law. The teaching of the law had been separated from them. They were living in a foreign land. They had been in adopted foreign and pagan practices. And now they were returned to their city and someone brings out the law of God, which was given to Moses. Remember, this is their law. And their heart began to rejoice. This is what we were longing for. Wouldn't you love to have that kind of thirst for the Word of God? And I'll be honest with you, I probably wouldn't and couldn't do this. But wouldn't it be neat if you had said, we had church at nine, and you all came in and you sat down and 
someone got up here and just began to read. And about 11.30, they said, well, I probably need to quit reading. And we sat there in our seats spellbound because the Word of God was so precious to us. If that seems foreign to you, as it does to me, I confess, then you realize how far we maybe have come from truly loving just the precious Word of God. I mean, what if we called a Sodom assembly one week and we just begin to read? And those who can understand, we're here. You know, Jonathan Edwards is an old preacher of the 1800s. And it is said that he read. He would approach the pulpit and he would begin to read the Word of God and then he would read his sermon and then he would read the Word of God and people would literally hold the pews in England in front of them. Because of the, the work of God was so strong in their midst, they would grip the pew and try not to be moved because of the, word, the power of the Word of God. I wouldn't mind if we saw a few finger digs in the back of these chairs. I'd be okay with that. Folks trying to hold on to their sinful ways, but God is too loving and strong when He brings you to repentance. All because of the Word of God. Do you see why we have emphasized and have cast forth a vision that this will be a church centered on teaching the sound doctrine of the Word of God. For it is profitable to reproof, correction, for discipline, for instruction. It's the Word of God that brings growth. This is the life change agent for your life. It's not my stories. It's not Bob's war analogies. It's not anything else. It's this book. Look further in chapter 8 with me. Chapter 8, verse, uh, I think it's verse 9. For all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. Isn't that interesting? Look at verse 13. They were gathered to Ezra the scribe that they might gain insight into the words of the law. And so this whole beginning now of the city's reformation was that they wanted to hear the word of God. Well, that was good for a while until they began to find things they, they weren't obeying. Now it really gets interesting. Watch this. Verse 9 talks about some prayers from the children of Israel and how they gather and they confess their sins. They separate themselves from foreigners. Look with me at verse, uh, chapter 10 now. Verse 28. All those who had knowledge and understanding were gathered together. And they began to take on themselves a curse and an oath to walk in God's law. Here's what happened. They just read the law of God every day in public. And finally, some folks said, you know what? If you understand this, then we've got to get together and make an oath, a binding covenant, that we're going to obey what we're listening to. Isn't that neat? It's like James, isn't it? It's not enough to be a hearer, but you've got to be a hearer and a doer. They knew that back in Nehemiah's time. We can't just keep standing here listening to Ezra read the book of the law. We should do something. And they made an oath. And what's so odd about the Old Testament to me is that if you broke that oath, it was then a curse. And it's much like the lightning bolt um, sunshine theory. If you do good, you'll get the sunshine. If you do bad, you get the lightning bolts. That's kind of what it's like. They keep reading the word of the, of the, of the law, the law of God. Look with me at chapter 13. Chapter 13, verse 1. On that day they read aloud from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and there was found written in it, 
um, some laws about Ammonites and Moabites. And watch this, verse 3. So it came about when they heard the law, they excluded all foreigners from Israel. See, remember the oath? If it says it, we'll do it. So suddenly they saw that in this law that they should, there should not be these people in their, in their Israelite camp. They said, okay, you got to go. Now, I can't explain that very well. I'll be honest with you. I struggle with those parts of the Old Testament in that economy and culture. Not struggle with his inerrancy. I struggle understanding that type of, you know, in our society, it's a, a very tolerant kind of everybody's welcome kind of thing. And I don't have the time in this sermon to try to go into that Old Testament theology. But I want to say to you that that was the law of God for that time. And instead of trying to buck it, they said, let's do it. Now, you think that was rough. Look with me at chapter uh, 13, verse uh, 7. Apparently, Eliashib had given Tobiah some room in the courts of the temple. And Tobiah was one of the ones who opposed the rebuilding of the wall. He was one of the enemies. And he had a room in the temple. There's some analogies there from the U.S. and our foreign people, but I'm not going to that right now. And what's this? Nehemiah came and it says in verse 8, I threw all of Tobiah's household goods out of the room. He said, this violates the law of God. So guess what? My name is U-Haul Moving and Storage. And your stuff is now outside. You know what Nehemiah didn't do? He didn't ask for a committee. He didn't ask for permission. He didn't say, What's, is it a good idea? He said, guess what? This book says this. You're doing this. So guess what? I am now self-appointed to take care of the matter. Tough. But they had a strong commitment to making sure this book was followed. Look with me. It gets even better. Verse 10. He discovers the portions of the Levites had not been given them. So begins to order that, hey, you know what? You've got to make sure the Levites get their portion of the offerings of the grains and so forth like that. You can't rip off these people who are taking care of the temple and stuff. In verse 15, he saw in Judah some men who were treading wine presses on the Sabbath. They were violating the Sabbath law. Look what he says in verse uh, 15. I admonished them on the day they sold food. In other words, they were taking advantage of the people's day off. And they would come and outside the city walls, they'd sell their stuff. And so they had a captive audience, basically. Nehemiah said, you can't do this. This is not right. Well, they didn't listen the first time. And so verse 17 says, I reprimanded the nobles of Judah. And I said to them, what is this evil thing you're doing by profaning the Sabbath day? Look at verse 21. Why do you spend the night in front of the wall? If you do so again, I will use force against you. Nehemiah was committed to making sure that these, this people followed the law of God. My favorite one, though, is verse 23. And probably because I would, uh, it appears that maybe I was there with no hair now. I don't know. Verse 23. In those days, I also saw that the Jews had married women from Ashdod. He mentioned some other foreign pagan tribes. He says, then, listen, this is not right. You know what God's law says. So he says in verse 23, I contended with them. And cursed them and struck some of them and pulled out their hair. Yes, that's in the Bible. You know what forced Nehemiah, what made Nehemiah act so aggressively? It's because he saw the law of God being violated. Oh, for a passion like that today. Oh, for people. When God's word is disobeyed, not that we had pulled out people's hair. Or strike them, but that we would have the same passion to do whatever it takes to see the law of God obeyed. Instead of saying, 
what our culture says. Well, hey, it's everybody's choice. You can do what you want to do. Well, they just believe differently. Really. I want to see everybody in the world obey this book. I know I can't make them. But should that lessen our passion to see this book obeyed and followed? No. We want all men everywhere to believe. Paul said that. And we echo that comment. Three elements enable these guys to really get something done and get along. Strong and sensitive leadership. A real bold approach to opposition. And then a return to scriptural authority. Those three elements will have to be in place if we're going to build our wall. You keep a list of our church goals in your Bible probably like I do. There's seven subjective goals. There's seven objective goals. We've been asking you to pray for one of those goals every day. Seven days in a week. Every week it'd be great to have 150, 160 people just lifting up to God. God, help us to accomplish these things while we're loving each other too. Those things won't happen though. If we're not willing to serve, stand, and submit. And I'll go as far as to say this. Probably the area that most right now affects us is the submission area. When folks come to our church, when you ask and invite someone, you need to know up front, we, we, we cannot lessen what's expected of the gospel. We can say it in a nice way, but I want to be up front with you. The cross is offensive. Now, we're not offensive. But Paul said in the New Testament, it is a stumbling block. And we're going to preach strongly that the only way to heaven is through Jesus Christ and His death and atonement for our sins. We're going to stick with the Word of God. And to the point that's palatable, great. But when it becomes bitter, I'm sorry. We will stick with the Word of God. Let me ask you a question. In what areas is your life violating this book? Are you involved in some type of relationship right now that you know is unscriptural? And you know this book says that shouldn't happen. But you're like, well, maybe I... Why sugarcoat it? Why excuse yourself? Why justify? Take action and obey this book. Are you involved in some financial dealings? Under the table that you know are dishonest. Why say, well, I'll take care of that later. No, no. This book says speak the truth and be honest with all. Do what you got to do. Do the right thing. Are you involved in, in lying to your spouse? Are you covering up about certain things? Do you see what I'm saying? It's not just about the Jews any longer, is it? But I think all of us have to come to a point where we say, you know what? I will submit to the authority of this book even when I realize I'm wrong. And if I'm wrong, then this book's right and I'll get in line with it. Period. When that kind of attitude happens, man, God moves in ways we've never seen. I, uh, I really am amazed at how often Nehemiah, Nehemiah's plan parallels what Paul told Titus. 
Titus is another one of my favorite books. And you know what he told Titus? He told him three things to get that, those churches on the island of Crete. He said, three things you've got to do to get them going. You've got to really appoint godly elders. Leadership, serving. You've got to watch out for false teachers, the opposition. And you've got to preach sound doctrine. Scriptural authority. Do you see how God's plan crosses time barriers and cultures and, and, and different situations? And when there's a work of God to be accomplished, He looks for men and women who will stand strong on this book. I and Grace West want to do that, don't you? You're not alone. I think of men like Billy Graham. I just got through reading his pictorial biography, and that's kind of a fancy way of saying a picture book with a few words. Great book, though. And one man followed him for over 30 years and took pictures of every crusade, every move, every meeting, and then chronicled that in a very thick account. And it was a crucial time when, asked, when they asked, the board asked Billy Graham, why don't you quit traveling so much, quit preaching, do more writing, make an appeal that would be larger to people, maybe not be so narrow. And the only time, this reporter, he says, the only time I ever saw Billy Graham stand up and almost in anger say, I will not do that, was when they asked him to stop preaching and start writing. He said, my life is about preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, and I will do that. Isn't that neat? You see what great things have accomplished through the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. Multiplied millions have heard the gospel. I think about James Dobson. He's a real motivator for, for me. You know why? Because his entire organization started in the basement of his home with he and his wife and a few radio stations. Now it's a mammoth operation. Not just helping families, but challenging anti-biblical cultures. Uh, you know that he is extremely, uh, he's, he's threatened every day. He has an extremely weird lifestyle. He never takes the same way to work. He has a private elevator that he drives his car onto that goes to his office. He gets death threats constantly. The homosexual community, uh, the education association, they want him out of existence. Don't mistake it. This man, under Dobson's organization, is, is a great asset of the kingdom of God. You know what? He's always done these things. He's led. He's refused to give in. And he said, you know why? Because this book says that's the way it ought to be. And I'll just be frank with you. I want to be part of that kind of group of men. Who says, I'm not afraid to take a risk. And even if we get opposition, we're going to keep going. Because this book says that's the way it ought to be. I want to accomplish something great for God. I know you do too. And this church does. These three things have got to be a part of it. Serving, standing, and submitting. That's an overview of Nehemiah. That's what they did. And I'm ready to continue my part in helping our church do that. As we work through this series, I'm going to tell you, God's going to point His finger... In one of these areas at you, he will. 
There's some of you out there that God's got his hand on to lead in this church. He does. I don't know who you are yet, but he does. When he calls your name inside your heart and says, I want you to do this now. Don't shy away and say, no, no, I kind of like that chair. I like just sitting. Answer, say, God, I'll be happy to help build the wall in Grace West by serving. I think there's some here that that God's going to use to really help us fight opposition. I mean, anybody can criticize, can't they? Anybody find what's wrong with something. But we're looking for people who will say, you know what? I know what, yeah, we know what's wrong, but how can we help fix it? And that's a great way to stand against opposition. Rally the troops. Be a supporter. Provide positive input. And then say, here's a, here's a possible solution. I like Nehemiah's principle. Yeah, we know there's war, but we're going to keep working at the same time. I hope this year, I hope nobody leaves our church because of opposition. I'll be honest with you. Someone says, well, I didn't like that, so I'm out of here. Well, I didn't get my way, so I'm out of here. Oh, they, it's getting a little tough over there. Their preaching's kind of hard. Or, or they didn't. I hope we rally together and love each other and say, you know what? It's, some things are tough right now. It's not exactly what I like. Or this is a little different. But hey, I'm going to keep working anyway. Battling and building. But most of all, I hope all of us will submit to the authority of the Word of God in every single area of our life. And when God shines that flashlight into the corner of your heart that you think nobody sees, and you're exposed and convicted, don't close the door and say, God, you can't look in there. Say, okay, God, your word's right and I'm wrong and I'll get in line. When he does that this, for the next few months, I trust that we'll all respond positively so we can get things done and get along.